Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 35, verses 10 through 17. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infamy eighteen years, and was bowed together, and could no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Christ had healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him, and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Burkett Notes Observe here, one, the afflicted person, a woman which had a sore disease inflicted upon her by the devil for eighteen years, which almost bowed her together. There is nothing that the devil delights more in than the miseries and calamities of mankind. Satan is not satisfied barely to infect the mind and poison the souls of men, but he delights to afflict and hurt the body, where and when he can obtain leave. Observe, too, Christ's compassion towards her and his miraculous healing of her. Jesus called her to him, and with a word speaking, healed her, where note that the inveterateness of the disease and the instantaneousness of the cure made the miracle evident. She that had been bowed down eighteen years is in an instant made straight, and only by a word of Christ's mouth. Such a miraculous operation was an evident testimony of his divine mission, that he was the Son of God. Observe 3. How the heart of the poor woman is affected with Christ's hand. She glorified God. That is, she gave thanks to God and attributed the miracle to him. As the chief end of all God's extraordinary works, either of power or mercy, is the exaltation of his own glory. So the only way that we can set forth his glory is by celebrating his praises and expressing our own thankfulness. He that offereth me praises and thanks glorifies me. Psalm fifty twenty three, Observe 4. The unreasonable anger and unjust indignation which was found with the ruler of the synagogue against our holy Lord for working this miraculous cure on the Sabbath day. There is no person so holy, no action so innocent, but may fall under unjust censure, especially where malice and ignorance are combined. What a severe reflection doth this man make upon our blessed Lord for performing a work of mercy on the Sabbath day. Observe 5. Our Lord's Vindication of Himself from Calumny and False Accusation. 1. He charges His accusers with hypocrisy. Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you loose his ox or his ass from the stall on the Sabbath day and water him? It is one note of a hypocrite to condemn that in another which he doth himself. The Jews held it lawful to loose and lead a beast to watering on the Sabbath day, which was a work of servile labor, and yet would condemn Christ for healing a poor woman only with a word speaking. 2. Christ vindicates his own action by comparing it with theirs, which they judged lawful on the Sabbath day. Was their loosening and watering the beast a work of necessity? 
much more was his. Was theirs a work of mercy, his much more. Their compassion was to a brute beast, his to a rational creature, to a woman, and that not a stranger, a heathen woman, but one of their own, a Jewish woman, a daughter of Abraham. Nay, fathers, Christ's act was an act of far greater necessity and more special mercy than theirs. The beast might live a day without water, the beast might not be sick, but this woman was in sore distress, and had been so for eighteen years. Nay, she was in the hands of the enemy of mankind, bound by Satan. Was it not then a greater act of mercy and compassion to loose her than to lead a beast? Observe 6. What effect our Lord's vindication of himself had upon the hearers of it? His adversaries were ashamed, and the people rejoiced. Verse 17. His accusers were ashamed, and probably convinced, perhaps silenced, but would read not that they confessed their error or acknowledged their unjust censure or craved Christ's pardon. When persons' judgments are under conviction of an error or mistake, it's very hard to bring themselves to confess and own their mistake, because all men stand very much upon the credit and reputation of their understandings, and look upon it as a reproach to own themselves mistaken, though it is really otherwise. But though our Savior's adversaries were only ashamed, others rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Verses 18 through 21. Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Burkett Notes our Savior's design in both these parables is to keep his disciples and followers from being offended at the small beginnings of his kingdom and to foretell the future great success of the gospel, notwithstanding the present small appearance of the efficacy of it. To this purpose, he compares the kingdom of God, that is, the gospel church, to a grain of mustard seed, which being one of the least seeds, yet in that country grew into so large a tree that the birds did roost and lodge in the boughs of it. He also likens it to leaven, which quickly diffuses itself through the whole mass and lump, instantly turning a great heap of meal into its own nature. Christ shows hereby of what a spreading nature the doctrine of the gospel would be, notwithstanding all the malice and opposition of wicked men. Learn hence that how small beginnings soever the gospel had in its first plantation, yet by the fructifying blessing of God and the influence of the Holy Spirit, it has had, and shall have, a wonderful increase. Verses 22-24 through 24. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one of them unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. Burkett Notes Observe here, 1. The unwearied pains and diligence of our Holy Lord in preaching and publishing the glad tidings of the gospel to lost sinners. He went through the cities and villages teaching, not in great and populous cities only, but in poor and obscure villages also, not preaching by his exemplary life only, but by his holy doctrine likewise. Let such preachers who look upon the work of preaching as the least part of their business consider the infatigable pains which our Lord took in that work. And how will his diligence shame our negligence?
Observe, too, a curious question put to our Savior concerning the number of those that should be saved, whether they should be few or many. Lord, are there few that be saved? Where note how curiously inquisitive we naturally are after the knowledge of things that do not concern us. How forward to pry into unrevealed secrets and to search into God's hidden counsel. It concerns us rather to understand what sort of persons shall be saved than how many shall be saved, and to make sure that we are of that sort. Observe 3. Our Savior gives no direct answer to the curiosity of this inquiry, but turns a speech from him to the people. Jesus said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, etc. For the clear understanding of which expression we must know that Christ alludes to the feast and marriage suppers among the Jews. They that were invited did enter by a gate which was very straight and narrow, and as soon as the invited were once entered, the gate was shut and opened no more. Here Christ bids them to strive to enter into the kingdom of heaven before the gate is shut against them, and their entrance, by means of their coming too late, be made impossible to them. Strive to enter, etc., for many will seek, etc., where note one, the metaphor which Christ is pleased to set forth, heaven, and the happiness of a future state, by, he compares it, to a straight gate, to a gate to denote the possibility of entering, to a straight gate to denote the difficulty of entrance. A gate supposes the entrance possible, but a straight gate bespeaks the entrance difficult. Two, here is a duty urged and enforced upon all those that expect the happiness of another life, and desire to enter in at this straight gate, and that is, a diligent and industrious striving. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Three, we have a forcible argument and motive to excite and quicken us to the practice of this duty, drawn from the paucity or small number of those that shall obtain salvation in a dying hour. Many will seek to enter in, but shall not be able. Thence learn, one, that heaven or the happiness of a future state is attainable. Two, that it is not attainable without labor and difficulty. Three, that all those difficulties may be happily overcome by a diligent and industrious striving. Verses 25 through 30. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. Burkett notes, Our Savior, having exhorted all his followers in the foregoing verses to make sure of heaven and salvation to themselves, whilst the door of hope and salvation is open to them, by this parable of a master of a family inviting guests to his table, waiting for their coming, and at last shutting the door against them, because they either denied or delayed coming, Christ hereby represents to the Jews the great danger they were in if they neglected the present season of grace and salvation, which now they did enjoy, telling them farther how little it would profit them at the day of judgment to allege that they had eaten and drank in his presence, and that they had heard him preach in their streets, 
if they did not forsake their sins and obey his gospel. Adding farther, that it would be a heart-piercing sorrow, a soul-rending grief to them at that great day, to see not only the patriarchs and prophets and the other Jews, but even the despised Gentiles from all quarters and nations whom they thought accursed admitted into the kingdom of heaven, and themselves eternally shut out. For the last shall be first, and the first last. That is, the Gentiles, who were far off, shall receive the gospel, when you, for rejecting it, shall be cast off. From the whole, note one, that there is a determined time when souls must, if ever, accept of the offers of grace and salvation which are made unto them. Now is the door open, and persons invited in. Two, that ere long, Jesus Christ, who now stands at every one of our doors, waiting for our compliance with his gospel terms, will wait no longer upon us, nor strive any further by the motions of his Spirit with us. And once the master of the house has risen up, and he is shut to the door. 3. The doleful is the condition of such miserable souls against whom the door is shut. The door of repentance, the door of hope, the door of salvation, all shut, eternally shut, and not by him who shutteth, and none can open. 4. That all would be saved at last, and will cry for mercy when it's too late, even such as now sinfully undervalue and scornfully despise it. Ye shall stand without and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Note 5, that it is no good plea for admittance into heaven because we have been church members here on earth. No outward privileges, though Christ has taught in our streets, no external acts of communion, though we have eaten and drank in his presence and at his holy table, will justify our hopes of entering into heaven when we die, if we be workers of inequity while we live. Lord, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, but he shall say, I know ye not, ye workers of iniquity. Note 6. That as hell will be a second heaven to the glorified, so heaven will be a second hell to the damned. Hell will be a second heaven to the glorified, that is, it will add exceedingly to the happiness of the saints in heaven to see and be sensible of that misery which they escaped and the damned endure. And on the other hand, Heaven will be a second hell to the damned, that is, it will increase their torments and add to the vexation of their spirits to see some in heaven whom they little expected to see there, some that never saw nor heard nor enjoyed what they have done, strangers, yea, heathens taken in, when the children of the kingdom, that is, the members of the visible church, are shut out. They shall come from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God but the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. Verses 31 through 33. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do curse today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Burkett notes, It may seem strange that the Pharisee, who had no kindness for our Savior, should come here and acquaint him with a danger that he was in from Herod. Get thee hence, for Herod will kill thee. It's probable they had a design to drive him out of the country because his reputation was so great amongst the people who were admirers of his person, hearers of his doctrine, and witnesses of his miracles. 
But what intention soever they had in equating Christ with this danger, it is very evident that our Savior slighted it by the message which he sent to Herod. Go and tell that fox. Where we must not suppose that our Lord did fix this name of fox upon Herod as an opprobrious title, thereby reflecting the least dishonor upon him as a king, but it was as a prophet to let him know that being about his father's work, he feared neither his power nor his policy, neither his cruelty nor his craft, and that nothing should be taken off from finishing the work of man's redemption. Learn hence that when God calls forth any of his servants to any special service for him, all the combined power and policy of the prince of darkness and his instruments shall never be able to hinder them till they have finished their course and done the service which God designed. I must work today and tomorrow and the following day. As if Christ had said, Let Herod know that my time is not in his hand, and, as to this matter, I am not under his command or power. Ere long, my work will be finished, and then I shall be perfected. Observe here that to impose this ignominious but agreeable name on Herod is not contrary to the command not to speak evil of the ruler of the people it being the office of a prophet, not to spare kings when they reprove their offenses. Accordingly, Christ here uses his prophetic call and power in giving this tyrant a name so suitable to his actions. Go and tell that fox, from me, a prophet sent of God, and therefore authorized to style him, that I am hastening to Jerusalem to lay down my life there, not fearing to be killed by him in the way. For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem." where the Sanhedrin sit, who are to pass judgment upon me. Dr. Whitby. Verses 34 and 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, Ye shall not see me until the time comes when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Burkett notes, Our Lord concludes this chapter with a compassionate lamentation over Jerusalem, the place where he was to suffer. His engermination, or doubling of the word, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, shows the vehemency of his affection towards them and the sincerity of his desires for their salvation. Observe 1. The kindness and compassion of Christ to the Jews in general, and Jerusalem in particular, set forth by a lively metaphor and solemnitude, namely, that of a hen gathering her chickens under her wings, as the hen doth tenderly cherish and carefully hide and cover her young from the eye of the destroyer, so would Christ have shrouded and sheltered this people from all those birds of prey, and particularly from the Roman eagle, by whose talons they were at last destroyed. Again, as the hen continueth her call to her young ones from morning to night, and holds out her wings for shelter to them all the day long, so did Christ wait for this people's repentance and conversion. For it was more than forty years after they had killed his prophets and murdered himself before they met with a final overthrow. Observe, too, the amazing obstinacy and willfulness of this people in rejecting the grace and favor, the kindness and condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would have gathered ye, but ye would not. Observe 3. The fatal issue of this obstinacy. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Is left, that is, certainly and suddenly will be left desolate, the present tense being put for the palo post futurum, which denotes the certainty and proximity of this people's ruin. Learn 1. That the ruin and destruction of sinners 
is wholly chargeable upon themselves, that is, on their own willfulness and impenitency, on their own obstinacy and obduracy. I would have gathered you, says Christ, but ye would not. Learn, too, how deplorably and inexcusably they will perish, who perish by their own willfulness and obduracy under the gospel. 3. That there is no desire like unto God's desire of a people's repentance, no longing like unto God's longing for a people's salvation. O Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered thee, whence shall it once be? Jeremiah 18.27